Good morning, if I can encourage you, if I can encourage you to take your seats if you've not already done so, uh, if you're new around here, my name's Adrian. Uh, basically over the last kind of two to three months, we've been looking at the Sermon of the Mount that uh, Jesus taught through in order that he'd be able to reveal what it looks like to live a life that is centered on him centered around him, has him at the very center of our being, of what it looks like to live in the repercussions of his life, death, and resurrection. And so he offers this teaching of how it shapes the whole of our life, that it isn't just going to be some sort of badge that we wear of saying, oh yeah, I'm with Jesus, or uh, it kind of causes us to be some sort of moral code police, that whenever we're present, everyone thinks, oh, we better not swear, because they're around. But rather, that it should infiltrate and, and alter everything about who we are both in respect to how we look at our past, in respect to how we live in our present, and also how we look forward to our future. And so over the past couple of months, we've been looking at how everything about us is shaped and changed in how we relate within ourselves, how we think about things, how we act towards things. But over the last couple of times we've met, so a couple of Sundays ago, we looked at how we then are affected in how we act towards others, how we approach others. As we looked at that, and we looked at it under the uh, guise of planks and pigs, where we looked at what it looks like to walk around with a giant plank in your eye and make sure you remove it, and also what it looks like to throw pearls to pigs. And so I'm not going to speak any more about it than that. If you didn't hear that one, please go online and listen to it, because I'm sure you're in for a great kind of 45 minutes of listening to that of planks and pigs. But today I want to look at not just how we approach others, but actually how living-centered changes how we approach God. And that's what we're going to look this morning, is that's where we get to in Matthew 7, verse 7. So if you've got a Bible, if you turn to it, just um, a quick breather whilst we turn to that in a Bible, just to say, uh, if you get to see them, Pete and Trina, I don't know if they're actually in the room. I know Trina's doing kids work this morning. I thought they did just an unbelievably excellent job of hosting us last Sunday for a barbecue. I know numbers of people saw me in the weeks kind of leading up to it saying, are you sure their garden's going to be able to hold all of us? And boy, did it, man. We had like, I don't know, probably 150 of us there at the barbecue. There was at least room for double, if not triple, that number. And so I think next year we'll definitely go back. And let's all go and take our friends as well. So um, they're up for it. Um, I think we're up for it. So that's what we'll be doing next year, I promise. Um, Let's get back to Matthew 7. Anyway, this is what Jesus talks about in respect to how we approach God. He says this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? 
Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? See, in this, what Jesus is saying is how we're to approach God is with trust and confidence. That we're to approach God trusting him confidently. And we're to do that because we understand that God is now our Father. That's the reason behind it. That's what Jesus is saying. Trust confidently because he's your Father. Now in that, for some of us, we might switch off and think, well, okay, we've got that one then. Let's switch off and we'll wake up in about 30 minutes when Adrian finishes. Well, hopefully most of us won't do that. If you do, at least you've got the core part of it. Trust confidence because he's your father. But what I want to do is flip it around this morning because the danger is that we rush in and say, okay, let's confidently trust God then. What are we going to confidently trust him with? Rather than realizing there was an assumption that Jesus was making that was groundbreaking and profound in how we're to approach God. And that's where he finishes off with is that we trust confidently because he's our father. And therefore, we have to dig in and stop for a moment and say, well then, what does it mean then to approach God like this? See, living centered on Jesus, on his life, death, and resurrection, causes us to approach God fundamentally differently. We don't approach one who's this distant deity or go through some sort of ritual to show that we can be in his presence. Rather, because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, it means that we approach God as family. That's the point. It isn't that because of us recognizing that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection has meant that we now have peace with God, has meant that now we have life and life eternal, now means that we get this life that's governed by love. Everything we sang of in that last song, and you can kind of, kind of sing that last thing, and you think, man, this is a new one, you're kind of catching up with it in the different words, and you think, man, this is rich, there's so many things going on here. What does it mean that a place where angels don't dare to step, and yet we can go there? Where's that place? And a throne that's my home, and maybe you're left there thinking, what does that mean? Well, go and find out. Because the point is that God always wants to lead us with questions. We say, actually, let's go and find the answers. Because maybe the answers are fundamentally profound to change everything. But let's not go on that, because there's a tangent I could go on, which I'm not going to, which is to teach into a song. Let's get back to this passage. Because we approach God as family. Because of what Jesus has done, it isn't that we see what Jesus has done, which means that we get to stand before a holy and perfect God right before him, not in fear, but understanding we're able to stand before him. Which means that we don't stand there as dutiful servants. Isn't we stand on the edge thinking, God, you're amazing. God, you're amazing. Who am I? Let's just hide away. Let's let God do his thing because you're amazing and I'm not. It's rather that Jesus says, no, what I've done is I've ushered you in in order that you'd be able to be part of this family. When Jesus introduces God, he says, this is my father. He doesn't say, this is God. This he says, this is my father. Now, for God to be a father, it means that he needs to have children. What Jesus is announcing is, I'm his son. I'm going to fundamentally change how you see God. God isn't some distant deity who's out with a rod to smack the earth. Isn't he kind of some timekeeper who kind of set up the clock, the watch of the earth, and said, let's now see how this one unwinds? No, he's one who at the very beginning was always a father, who was always a son. 
It was always, as we're going to go on to see in a couple of weeks' time, it was always the Spirit. We haven't got time today to look at the, the fullness, the richness of what it means that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. We're going to do that in a few weeks' time. But today we just stop off at this point that we're called into a family, a family that's always been. A family that is Father, a family that's Son, a family that's Spirit. And that as such is always being love. And Jesus introduces and says, now we're part of this family because of what Jesus has done. We're caught up in this family, so we approach one who is now our father with the same confidence as Jesus does. He who has always been the son of the father. Isn't that one day God thought, I know, I'll become a father. I'll send someone to go to earth. No, it's that we find out before the creation of everything, God was father, son, and spirit. And therefore, God who is Father is one who's always been loving, who's always been life-giving. Jesus says we're to approach God as family. We approach Jesus as our brother and our friend. We approach the Spirit understanding he's one who wants to draw alongside us because we're now intimately part of this family union. And we approach the Father as our Father. And Jesus wants us to get hold of this fundamental life-changing gift that God is our Father. And what he does is he tells this story. Jesus always told brilliant stories. That's why you don't have to make up new ones. Jesus had the best ones. So Jesus tells this story and says, hey, you want to know what God's like as a father? Imagine a dad. And maybe Jesus, if he was here present physically in the room, obviously he's present by his spirit, but physically in the room, maybe he'd do this. Let's imagine Adrian, me. I'm a dad. I've got three kids. I've got a 12-year-old, yeah, 12, nearly 13-year-olds. Uh, <laughs> I forget their age. 10, nearly 11, and an 8-year-old. got three kids. Now, the thing about me is this. Now, I'm going to go back to first person rather than trying to speak of Jesus over me because that starts to feel a bit weird. So let's talk about me because Jesus says, let's look at an earthly dad first. So here's me. I'm an earthly dad. I've got three kids. I'm not a morning person. It's the one part of my life, big part, there's many other parts, but it's the one big part that I think Jesus is really trying to work hard in redeeming me in that side, of changing me from the inside out. I've tried to, just to give you a taste, that when I first got married to Lucy, my first year goal for being married to Lucy was to say hello in the morning. That was it. <laughs> Literally, the first year goal of marriage was to say hello to Lucy in the morning. That means before nine o'clock. I, I just am not a morning person. I don't like the mornings. I don't see the point of them. I kind of think the morning should start at about 11. I think life would be a much easier place if basically we went to bed at about three, got up about 11. The day would work. But somehow someone designed something different. And so for me, I kind of grate against that. And gradually I realized that actually even that part that grates against it, Jesus wants to change in order that I'd be more like him before nine o'clock in the morning. So my kids, they want breakfast. You know all of that about me. When they ask for breakfast, I'm not the nicest person. I try to be, but I'm not. I just, you know, they'll say, Dad, can we have breakfast? That's not an unrealistic kind of ask, is it? You know, Dad, can we have breakfast? We've just gotten up. My eight-year-old saying, I really want some breakfast. At that point, 
Even though I don't like the mornings, even though at that point I was going, and they call me the grizzly bear. And so I'm there, can I have some breakfast? At that point, I don't think, yes, you can. You can have some toast. And so what I do is I go out in the garden, I grab a pebble, a big one, and I lay it on a plate, I heat it in the oven, I say, there you go. And she grabs it, breaks her teeth. I don't do that. Even though I'm not a morning person, when my kid asks for toast, I'll give them toast. Jesus says, Adrian, even though he's flawed in the morning, even though he doesn't like mornings, even though, to be honest, he's not that like me in the morning, he still can show love to his child. He still can seek to give them something good rather than seek to do the helm. And then Jesus spins it and he says, hey, but that's just someone who's flawed. That's just agent, you remember, non-morning person agent, agent who's totally flawed. Imagine one who's a father who's perfect, who doesn't struggle in the mornings or the evenings or during the day, is consistent always. And all he ever wants to do is what even agent can do at his worst point, is do you good. That's the kind of father we're talking about. See, Jesus wants us to understand that because he doesn't ever want us to understand that our father in heaven, our eternal father that we're being called into relationship with, is limited by our earthly experience. See, for some of us, we may think, man, my dad was way better than you, Adrian. (laughs) Probably was. But even if we've had a much better dad than I can be, Do you know what? It's nothing compared to who God is as Father. But maybe it's we're sat here and we're thinking, man, even the word Father feels like vinegar in my mouth. It's bitter tasting. I don't really want to even hear this. For us, we need to understand that we have one who longs to be a Father for us as a Father should have always been that causes whatever we've known to just fall away in order that we could know one who truly reveals what it means to be a father, in order that we could know who we're truly meant to be. See, Jesus stops and says, you know what this father in heaven's like? Well, he's way better than any good father or bad father. He's like this, but at that point we could limit and say, well, okay, Father God is one who's looking out for my best. But actually, I don't want us to leave it there. I want us to pause and dig deeper as to who this father is. See, Jesus didn't want us to just live thinking, oh yeah, father's one who wants to do us good. He wanted us to understand and grapple with how good the father is and wants to be to us. So I want us to moment for ado is to pause and to remember what it means for God to be our father. And in understanding that, it allows us to both see who he is more fuller and understand who we are. So firstly, if we look at who he is. Now, Jesus again tells this amazing story for us to understand what God as a father is like. And he does it by telling a story of a natural story of a son and a father relationship. He tells this story, a well-known story called the, the kind of lost son, the prodigal son. And he tells this story about a son who basically goes up to his dad and says, Dad, I wish you were dead. Please would you give me what would be therefore mine? 
my inheritance, in order that I can go and make better life for myself. I said, the dad said, well, here you go then. Here's your inheritance. And then we read, and Jesus tells the story, and says, well, this guy then lives the high life. He invites all of his friends around, has a party, kind of just goes for it for about a year, and spends everything. Lives the best life ever, but spends everything. And at the end of it, it's just left with nothing. We're told that he got to this point of total kind of self-destruction. Or actually, he had to then find a job. And the only job he could find was one where he was feeding pigs. And what he realized is they were eating better than himself. And so he thought, well, man, I'm now envious of how pigs are eating. Maybe I should swallow it and go back to my dad. And maybe I could serve him. And in me serving him, maybe I'd have a better life. And Jesus then, as this passage goes on, this is what Jesus then tells about how the father responds when his son returns home. He says this, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Jesus says, do you want to know what God's like as a father? He's like this. He was like this to this son. This is what it's a picture of. It's not a real event that happened. It's a, a story to allow us to understand the real events that have happened in our life. Do we have a God as a father who recognized that for all of us, we were ultimately in rebellion against him? We ultimately said, actually, we can do our life better than we can with you. Whether we knew him or not, we said, well, actually, I just want to do my life my way. And yet there was suddenly a realization of who Jesus is and what he'd done. And the realization of that, saying, man, could that possibly be the life that I've always wanted? And when we turn to him, God greets us as a father like this. And God continuously then wants a relationship with us that's marked out like this. A relationship that looks like this, if we go to the next slide, a relationship where a father is characterized by unconditionally loving us. We're told in the story that the father saw the son coming and ran to meet him. He didn't wait for him to get to him. He saw that as soon as he turned, he ran to meet him and unconditionally loved him. He said, actually, it doesn't matter what you've done. I just want to continuously give you dignity. I want to give you the best robe, a ring to show that you still carry my authority. Told that the father was merciful towards him. He didn't hit him with judgment. He said, I told you to do this. You messed up again. Bang! He's like, man, I just want to embrace you and kiss you. Boy, I've missed you. He says he's filled with compassion. He saw the plight of his son and thought, and the last thing he needs to hear is, I told you so. He just needs to hear, I love you. He was extravagant. Isn't he kind of gets the point of thinking, man, robe, ring, that's enough. No, no, no. Let's call the whole of the village in. There was a massive amount. When Jesus is speaking into this, it was like a culture where there would have been huge shame at this point. What are you doing celebrating a son who's in rebellion against you? You don't want to do that. You want to hide this one, sweep him into the house, and gradually bring him out into the public. 
it, Jesus loved to kind of break social norms and said, oh, no, that's not what God's like. God is a father. He's extravagant. He loves to hold up trophies of his grace so that others would look in and say, how come they get that? They don't deserve that. Because we then realize that none of us deserve anything. Because it's all about his extravagant heart towards everyone. And at the point at which we think, man, I don't deserve this, is the point at which we get to understand that we fully do. <laughs> and that we get to understand this, a father who's waiting to meet us. That's the point. Isn't that we come through some sort of ritual thing, oh yeah, let's do a couple of songs, G yourself up into God. No, no, we've got a father who's just longing to meet us. He's kind of there saying in the Psalms, he sings over us in our sleep. Can't help it. We're asleep. We're thinking, man, I'm just dreaming about some wacko dream. I don't know. It's going on, a processing of my day. I don't really understand dreams a lot of the time. I don't know. It's me driving a car through a fish tank. I'm dreaming that. And there's God the Father, it says, just singing over me with love. Because he can't wait till I wake up. Because when I wake up, he realizes at that point he's waiting for me. He's waiting for me to turn to him. To then say, Father, what, what are we going to do today? Because he wants to walk with me for the whole day. He wants to cause me to have a day that's continuously revolving around his unconditional love towards me, his mercy, his compassion, his extravagance. So he's waiting for me continuously. And do we live like that? Do we live thinking when we wake up, Father, you've been waiting? Or we think, oh man, it's the morning. At some point, I remember God. A father who's waiting for us. This is who Father is. It reminds us of this. This understanding God is like this. But he also remembers who we are. So you get to remember that who we are is we're those that are now His. If He's our Father, that means he, we're His children. It means that we have a family that is eternal that we will forever belong to. We have a Father who will always be our Father, always out for our best. We have one who now reveals our identity and value. In order that we can walk through this earth not thinking what others think of us matters, but rather understand that we have this Father who is eternal, who loves us unconditionally. And that's what causes us to stand tall. Not what we achieve or what others think of us, but who he said about what he said about us. That we're his. See, Jesus then says, if this is the point, if this is where you get to, of understanding that we have this Father, then surely it gives you an ability to understand that you then live to trust Him. We're just going to rock it through these two points. Because the point is that out of understanding who we have as a Father, it allows us then to say, well, let's trust Him. And Jesus says, well, what do you trust Him? Well, you ask, seek, and knock. What's that? Well, it's, it's the language of dependency. If God is our Father, then we trust Him with everything. Ask, seek, and knock is basically saying, God, whatever's going on in my life, whatever I need, Father, I'm trusting it to you. I'm asking you to be involved in it. I'm seeking for your involvement in this. I'm knocking on the door to you, saying, would you come and be involved in this? This is the language of dependency. It's not a shopping list language. It's not an arm wrestle language. It's the language of dependency. It's me waking up every day saying, I can't do this by myself. Boy, I try to, but I always mess up when I do. It's me waking up and saying, you've been waiting for me? I need you. It's the language of dependency. It's also the language of perseverance. Ask, seek, knock. 
It's like the phraseology there is ongoing. It's an ongoing sense of keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. There's a sense of sometimes I ask for something. Like, if I really want a decision to be made, I don't just kind of wait for it. There's sometimes I'll get it, I'll say, what do we think about this? I don't know who it is. It's someone I'm trying to get. It might be emailing them. Let's say it's an email one. Email them. Sometimes they will immediately respond. So I get my response. I think, I've asked, they've responded. If they don't respond within the set period I want them to, which is usually an hour, I'll then start <laughs> to seek them out. I'll pick up my mobile phone, and I'll start ringing them. Then hopefully at that point, the answer, and we get the decision. If at that point I go to voicemail, then I think, game on. <laughs> I've asked, I've seeked, now it's going to be knocking. And so I'm now going to pester them through every possible means. I'm going to tweet them, I'm going to email them, I'm going to phone them, I'm going to text them. If that don't fail, I'm going to run the house because I want a decision. I'm not going to settle with like, let's see when it all happens. No, I want the decision, I'm going to keep going. God wants to put in us. So he says, we, we have a father and we need to persevere. We need to ask, we need to seek, we need to knock. Now, in it, why is it that God sometimes causes us to ask and sometimes causes us to knock? Because he wants to teach us stuff because he's our father. Sometimes my kids ask for stuff. And I think, I could give you that. But I don't really know if you really want it. Do you really want that? And so I'll just say, well, let's see. Now, my kids know if I say, let's see, that doesn't necessarily mean no, but it probably is more no than yes. So they're going, let's see. I then find out how much they want it. So I've got one kid, and they'll hear a let's see. And basically, I can tell within a week whether that let's see was something they really wanted or not. So I've got one kid, and they'll hear it. And within a week, they've either forgotten it. They just don't want to know. And at that point, I think, do you know what? It's good that I didn't just give you what you wanted there, because actually it wasn't something you really wanted. If after two months they're saying, you know that, I really want that, I really want that, I want that, I really want it. I'm starting to think, I think you really do. <laughs> and do you know what? I think you want it more than you did before. And I think you understand more why you want it. And that's what God wants to do with us. But it's trust, but it's also trusting confidently. Because actually we have a confidence in a father. A father isn't we just saying, I better trust this to God and see. Let's throw it up and see what happens. That's a deep sense of confidence because of the father we've got. Because we understand this Father is after our best. Remember the story of me on a morning, yet God who's perfect, who's always going to seek to give us what's good for us. Therefore, when we ask, we say, God, I know whatever I'm asking for, whatever I'm seeking for, whatever I'm knocking for, I know that you've got my best at heart. Therefore, you will work out the best in me. It's also not just the best, it's also that we understand we're going to be hurt. That's why we have confidence. We understand confidence in one who's after our best. We also have confidence in one who's going to hear us. Jesus doesn't say, if you seek, occasionally you find. If you ask, you might be answered. If you knock, possibly, just possibly, the door might be opened. And he says, ask, given, seek, find, knock, opened. It's like, it's going to happen. Therefore, we need to come confidently understanding a God who's got our best in heart, at heart is going to continuously seek to answer our requests. We are going to be heard by him. Our asks, requests of our Father to come and partner with us in our life will never fall on deaf ears. He will always hear us and always want to be walking with us. Which leads us to the last thing we can be confident in is his 
timing which is perfect. We have a father who will and can. We have a father who will do stuff. We have a father who can do stuff. Maybe I've done this the wrong way around. Let's do it the other way around. I think it works better that way. A father who can do it and a father who will. The deal is, I and you never know because he knows our best for us. What the distance is going to be between him can doing it and he will do it. I never know what that distance is going to be. Sometimes it's instant. Sometimes it's a month. Sometimes it's a lifetime. Sometimes it's when I finally meet him. And suddenly I realize that, yes, I'm now fully his. I'm fully restored. I'm fully healed. And I realized at that point that God has done so much in me. It was only possible between the gap of can and will. But I promise you, you always will. For some of us, we need to live knowing that. We have a father who is after our best. And I don't know why sometimes he doesn't act on our time scale. I don't know why the Father doesn't do some things that I think, man, surely if you did that now, it'd be a lot easier. What I do know is that he is perfect. And that I can look back and think one day with him, when all of that stuff happened, you did some stuff in us that you wouldn't have otherwise been able to do. And we now understand something fuller of who you are than we would have done otherwise. And for some of us, we just have to rest in that. See, for us to live centered, it changes our approach to God. So what does that mean for you? What does it mean for you this morning? Does it mean that you need to receive him as your father? And maybe you've never done it. Maybe you thought, God's some distant deity out to get me. We realize that actually, you know, he's a loving father that has always been for me. And all I've got to do is turn to him and he runs to meet me. Maybe it is that we need to return to him. That we realize that we've just been going it alone kind of acting as though we're orphans rather than realizing we have a father and we need to just return to him. Maybe it's that we need to release it to him. Maybe we've been holding a tight grip on our life saying, God, I trust you with my salvation. Everything else is in the bag. I've got that one sorted. (laughs) The job, family, future, that's mine. I can do that. And for us today, it's saying, Father, I say, come and be involved in all of it. I release it to you. Maybe it's that we get to that point of rejoicing. Of realizing that we don't just get one who we call God. We get one who we call Father. And therefore we come and we delight in him. And as we delight and rejoice in him, we get to discover more of him, which then causes us to come with even more trust and confidence in him. So what we're going to do just to finish off this morning is Andrew's just going to come back and lead us in singing. I just want to give us a moment just to pause and just to sing to God as our Father and say in this moment as we sing to you, God, would you come and would you reveal yourself more to us? And as you reveal yourself more to us, why don't we use this moment as we sing to say, Father, we return to you. Father, we receive you. Father, we release to you. So should we stand?